0: Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12. through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory.
1: Amen. I can never read that as well as Lindsay. I'm so grateful. If you would, though, go t- turn with me in your Bibles to that passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's a small book in the New Testament. Feel no shame if you have to open it to the table of contents to help you find it. It's kind of tucked in there. If you're using one of our Bibles, one of those blue Bibles, it's on page 1089, 1089. Turn there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, because we are in a study over the course of the next few weeks through this book that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica to help them understand how they might lead a life that honors God. Now, if you weren't with us last week, I'm going to bring it to speed very quickly. The book of Thessalonians as we have it preserved for us in our Bibles was originally a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he planted in the first century city of Thessalonica. And he wrote it to them to help them understand how to lead a life that honors God. Now, the church in Thessalonica we saw last week, they were all in on Jesus. Paul showed up. He spent three weeks with them teaching and preaching and telling them the things of the kingdom of God, explaining to them the gospel that God sent Jesus, the Son of God, to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, to be buried in a tomb, to be raised from the dead. And the church in Thessalonica went all in. We know that because Paul begins his letter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2 He says we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith That when you put your faith in Jesus, faith went to work in you and through you. It wasn't just you raised your hand, you said a prayer, you came up front. You put your faith in Jesus and your life started to change. Your work of faith, your labor of love. You you went to work because you love God and love people and your life is a demonstration of that love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we just stopped right there, wouldn't it be so cool if that could be said of us as a church? That we, as people look at us, as the church at large looks at Eastside, they say, man, we thank God all the time for you because your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. But here's the thing. They were all in on Jesus, but they lacked understanding. Paul had three weeks. I mean, I've been trying to follow Jesus for 30 plus years and I'm still trying to figure it out. Can you imagine if you only had three weeks to download everything there was to know about living a holy God honoring life? And so Paul wrote back to them to teach them, how do you live a life that honors God? Because what we said as we embarked on this study is that excitement without any kind of education is extremely dangerous. Passion without understanding can lead us astray and make a mess of our life in no time flat. And I gave you an illustration last week. I know only half of you were here for it. So if you're here last week, pretend like you're hearing it for the very first time. I don't lead a very exciting life. There's only so much illustrative material. But in our family, when we get really excited, we try not to get ahead of ourselves. But a few weeks ago, I was grocery shopping. Me and my three-year-old daughter, my wife asked us to stop on the way home from school to, to pick up some things. And a few of those things, one of them was eggs. And we came to the egg aisle, and I was pushing my daughter in the car, and I got the eggs out. And without realizing, I just said, can you believe the price of eggs these days? I was shocked. They were so expensive. And so I said, you know what? Eggs are so expensive, we should just get chickens. I didn't think about it. I just kind of thought about it. And my three-year-old daughter's face lit up. She says, I want chickens. And, she, and I was like, oh boy. Uh, all right. Well, let's see. Let's go home and ask mama. And as, as she was excited about it, I got kind of excited about it. But I thought for sure Carissa would just say, no way. And we went home and, and Brighton runs up to her mom and she says, mama, we want chickens. I said, well, we talked about it. And, and, and Carissa was like, This sounds like a pretty good idea. And so all of a sudden, in a few minutes, we were all in on getting chickens. The problem is, I don't even know where you get chickens. I don't know what chickens eat. I don't know where they live. I don't know how long it takes them to start producing eggs. I have no idea if this is going to save us money. I'm starting to think we're probably going to end up not saving money. Um, but I did the only thing I need to do. I called my brother because he's the only other person I know silly enough to raise chickens. And he said, well, this is where you get them. So last week we go on Saturday, and we pick up four chicks and we bring them home. And we were so excited. We have like a little trough to put them in and some food and some hay and watering thing. And they're really cute. Um, I'm not sure they will be when they grow up. But I made another mistake I know now. I let my three-year-old daughter name all four chickens And she named them Sophia, Dolly, Annie, and uh, Zoe. And she loves these chickens. And I was laying in bed trying to catch up and read all these things about chickens. And I learned that the mortality rate in chickens is like 30 or 40%. And I'm panicking at this point. It's like, we just let our daughter name these chickens. There's a good chance at least one of them's going to croak. And like every morning I wake up, first thing in the morning, like I used to wake up, make coffee and pray. I wake up, check the chickens, make coffee and pray. And, uh, and it's been kind of fun. It's been kind of exciting. The good news is, like, I call my brother, I text my brother, like, every day, hey, here's a question about chickens, and he's bringing me alongside. And so far, for the first week, we've kept all four chicks alive. And I thought, this is a pretty good illustration because we can get really excited. We can go all in, and I think that's fun, and that's good in things of uh, grocery shopping and eggs and chickens, especially in things of faith. But we have to continue to learn. And I think life has demonstrated and faith has demonstrated that if we will continue to learn along the way, if we'll surround ourselves with people who love God, who know him as well or better than we do, and follow him alongside a few close friends, if we will humble ourselves to sit under the authority of his word, he will save our life. He will carry us along, he will sustain us, and he will save our life. And so this morning, we're going to look at this next passage. And for the, like, over the course of the next few weeks, as Paul writes this letter, as we explore passage by passage, scripture by scripture, we're going to see that we can, in fact, lead a life that honors God. That it's not something that's left to mystery or wonder, but God lays out for us through the book of Thessalonians and the rest of his word how we can humble ourselves to lead a life that honors God. And here's what I want to share with you. From my experience, leading a life that honors God is the best way to live life. It's hard, it's challenging, but it means God's way, it, it's a, it demonstrates that God's way is better than our way. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse one, I want you to hear this, Paul says to the church, he says, for you yourselves know brothers that our coming to you was not in vain. And we're gonna go relatively quickly, but I wanna stop there. He says, For I want you to know, brothers, or you know, brothers, rather, that our coming to you. And the time we spent with you, the life we lived, the the message we shared, the ministry we were a part of was not in vain. It wasn't worthless. Is there anything worse than going through the motions without seeing results? Like I will work hard, but man, if I don't see results, I'm ready to move on and try something different. I think you're the same way. We'll give up on a workout plan if we don't lose 15 pounds in the first five days, right? We want to see results. And it's the same thing with faith. I think sometimes we settle in uh, with scripture and settle into a rhythm spiritually. and We never stop to ask, is it actually working? Like, is this worth it? Or are we spinning our wheels spiritually? Are we going about this life in vain? Are we continuing to lean in and learn from God and explore? How can I grow in my commitment to God, my affection for him, so that changes the way I live my life? One of the things we say often is if you've ever felt like there must be more to life and faith than the routine everyday experience, we can lean in and experience immeasurably more together. What I love about this letter that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago is he says, you don't have to guess, like you can know, brothers, that your life, your faith, your ministry, your efforts are not in vain. He goes on, he says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but how do you keep going when you suffer or are treated shamefully? Like when you've suffered, Paul says the secret is this. Our boldness is in our God. Our boldness, our confidence, our courage to keep going doesn't stem from what other people say. Our boldness is in our God. And as I was praying through this text a few weeks ago, I just wrote down a note that our our God is too good and our gospel is too powerful to be slowed by the suffering inflicted on us or incurred at the hands of sinful people. If you follow Jesus for more than just a few minutes, you have suffered. You've been treated shamefully. And sometimes even by people who say that they love the Lord. And if that is your story, then I am so sorry. And if it was from me, I am especially sorry. But here's what I would say. As sin, sinful people strive to follow God together, we set our gaze on God, we remember his goodness, and we keep going. Because Paul says the gospel can continue to go forth through us and in us with, in the midst of much conflict. Challenges and conflicts don't have to subside for God to make a significant difference in the life we live. Then he says this, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. Okay, here's the thing. This is so important because Paul makes an assertion that his appeal, his preaching and presentation of the gospel was an honest appeal. In those days, there were all kinds of traveling philosophers coming in and out of towns, peddling all kinds of ideas, and it was hard to know who or what they could believe. And is that really any different than today? Like there are all kinds of spiritualists and swindlers out there with presenting these ideas that are swirling around. We're trying to figure out like, who can we believe? What can we believe? And I wonder if it's even more difficult today because so many things are being presented to us so often. Like I'm not on TikTok, but I, if I had a dollar for every time someone came up to me and said, hey, is this TikTok theology thing I saw true? I would be a wealthy man because we see these things, whether it's theology or recipes or workout routine And like, I just wonder, did anyone fact check this stuff or did a fourth grader post it online on the way to school in the whole world because it went viral, just bought in? Like in those days, there were philosophers coming in and out of town. And Paul says, hey, our appeal is different than their appeal. It doesn't spring from error. We're not confused. We are, in fact, eyewitnesses of the things in the person that we share. It doesn't come from impurity. It's not selfish. In fact, we have nothing to gain but everything to give. We've suffered for this. It's not from an attempt to deceive. We're not trying to trick anyone into believing. We're not trying to sell you on Jesus or impress you with fancy talk. We're trying to tell you about who we know and what we know. The gospel that has been entrusted to us. And I love when I read this and I think about East Side. Because, I don't know if you realize this or not, there is not a lot of fanciness or frills at Eastside. Partly because we can't afford it, and we meet in a middle school cafeteria. Like, our our worship space doesn't smell like incense. It smells like whatever the fourth graders had or sixth graders had for, for lunch on Friday, right? Like, that's the environment that God has allowed us to gather for worship. But what it means is, when things start to happen... When lives start to change, it's not because of fancy, fanciness or frills. It's because the power of God is at work in the lives of the people who gather together in his presence week in and week out to make much of him. All that we have to give you for anyone who serves in a leadership capacity at Eastside is that which God has entrusted to us. The gospel that God has given us, he's entrusted to us, and we are grateful for the opportunity to give it to you as it continues to work in us. At the same time, uh, we have all of these ideas swirling around. We We might have more ideas than ever swirling around. We also, I think, have the ability now more than ever to know that what God says is true and that the gospel can be trusted. Lee Strobel, who is now a well-known author, was a Yale graduate, editor of the Chicago Tribune. He was uh, an ardent atheist, and he writes this in his book, The Case for the Resurrection. He says, the resurrection of Jesus is the best attested event in the ancient world. Now, we could spend a significant number of Sundays diving into and unpacking the evidence for the resurrection and for Jesus and the work of Christ, the, the answer is that's readily available. If you wanna find out how you know that your faith can be trusted, you just let me know and we'll get a book and we'll go through it together. But why I say that? Because it's the gospel has never been with fancy talk. It's never been an attempt to deceive. We've never been trying to soft sell something that doesn't actually make sense. It's always been based on the person and the work of Jesus through the resurrection. Now we have a million questions, right? Earth was created six days, seven days, six days. Like, how does that work? You know, the, the flood, the Red Sea, the sun stands still. Like, the list goes on and on. I have questions. But where we have to start is with the resurrection. Is Jesus, who Jesus, is Jesus, in fact, who Jesus says he was? Did he really live a perfect life? Did he die on a cross? Did he rise from the dead? Is there evidence to support? And if so, we put our trust in the resurrection and watch God change our life. Paul says to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The cross of Christ, the gospel doesn't depend on an eloquent presentation. He says, for the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness, stupidity to those who are perishing. But to us, the church, those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God, Paul says. Our life, our efforts, our ministry—it's not in vain because the gospel is valid. The gospel is valid; it can be trusted. Paul says we are eyewitnesses of these things. We are telling to you that which has been entrusted to us, that which we have tried and tested, and know is true. And then he says this: He says we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Now. I wanted to zoom in on that because that's good. That should be all of our goal in life, right? Like we don't live life to please our neighbor. We don't live life to please man. We live our life to please God. But the truth is I've heard that line or some rendition of that line wielded as a weapon more times than I can count. Like you can't tell me what to do. I don't live my life to please man. Like that's kind of obvious, right? I'm not sure you're pleasing God either. Cause like when I look at the pattern of your life, it's all about pleasing yourself. Like I want to do what I want to do with who I want to do it with when I want to do it. Paul doesn't say that we're not accountable to people. In fact, he says, one of the reasons that you know our faith is valid is because you see the fruit of it. Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery. We didn't come telling you what you wanted to hear, but we were here with an, we were authentic in our pursuit and presentation of the gospel. And he says, as you know, like this is something you saw firsthand, You, you saw, you heard the gospel, you saw our life, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. There was no selfish ambition in our life, Paul says. It wasn't about what we could gain or what we could get ahead or how we could get ahead at your expense. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as an apostle. He says, we did not look for people to make much of us. We did not ask anything of you, though some things could have been owed to us. What Paul is saying is our character, who we were and how we lived is accountable both to you and to God. And the way you know that gospel is true is because you can see it at work in our life. We know that the gospel was valid because Paul uh, shared the fruit of the gospel in his life with the people he served. And then really what I want to focus on in these next six verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 12, because like Paul starts, hey, our faith, you know it was valid. How? And he's going to give an example. I want that to be true of each side. Like, we never want to be a church, whether we're large or small, whether we're planting churches or continuing to grow here, that is just going through the motions. I have no patience for spinning our wheels. I was telling our team this morning, like, we will work and we will work hard. I'll put out signs all day Friday so the people on our side of town can see the church gathers here as long as it produces fruit. But how do we know? And Paul says, what he's going to show us is the way we can know. That the gospel is going forth, that it's not we're not spinning our wheels as we gather together as a community of believers, in community, spurring one another on towards love and good works. Hear what Paul says. I want to read this passage and we'll walk through it. But we were gentle among you. So Paul's talking about the time he spent with the church in Thessalonica. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul says, we know that our coming to you is not in vain, because we shared not with you not only the gospel, not only the good news, but our own lives also that we showed up, we shared the gospel so that you could be partakers of God's own kingdom and his glory that he called you to in Christ. And the way we did that was we shared our lives with you. We committed to walking with you in community. And I know I talk about this a lot, but I become increasingly convinced of this, that that life in community is the only way for us to consistently live a life that honors God. It's what we were created for. Like, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 that God who created us exists for all of eternity in perfect fellowship with himself and this will blow your mind I'm still trying to explain this to some of our community because I don't fully understand how to but God exists the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship and community three in one and he created us in his image to live life in community with other people who love him and I don't mean like just attend a Bible study once or twice a week with a few strangers I mean we live life along side one another that we know one another that we spur one another on towards love and good works that we find a few faithful friends who are following Jesus and that will lead us to do the same and the question that comes to my mind and maybe yours like that sounds really good but that sounds hard like it seems easy to live life by ourselves and I, and the question you ask is, like isn't that hard like it is like it's harder. Then you can imagine, and the truth is, if I was being completely transparent, I'm still learning how to live life well this way. Because the enemy and the American dream is telling me that autonomy should be my highest aspiration. It's what I was raised with: that be your own man, do it on your own. And there's an element of that that spurs me on to work hard. But the truth is, we weren't created to do life alone. We're created to do life in community. And I experienced both the highs and the lows of that this week and every week. But this week, just in a few hours on the course of a Friday, I spent. Uh, The first part of Friday with Tyler and Reagan, two key leaders here at Eastside, who are helping me create a uh, seamless, unified, cohesive community group experience, because we want to make community groups available to everyone who raises their hand and says, hey, I want to grow closer to God with a community of believers. And I invited Tyler and Reagan in because they have, their life has been changed as they commit to walk with God in the context of community. And so many of ours has. I got to hear how God has convicted them of sin and how they waged in one war uh, against sin in their life, how they're discerning their calls to ministry and how God has equipped and called them, how he has has given them an ever-increasing affection for God and his people, all in the context of community. And I was so excited. We laid out this strategy and started putting the pieces in place, much of which we'll share with you in the next few weeks. And I left there and I went to help a a friend in my community group pack up his house and move into his new house. It was like this joyous celebration. And in between I found myself on a phone call with a with a dear friend and and it was one of the hardest, most hurtful phone calls is like our friendship had become fractured. We're trying to figure out how is this what happened and I hung up on that phone call. I'm just telling you like the community aspect of it. I called my friend who sticks closer than a brother. Uh, You might know him. His name is Nick he plays tar pretty well and I said Nick we've been praying about this and I don't understand it I've got more questions than I have answers but can you help me process and can you point me to walk closer with God to lead others well and I jumped out of the car and I helped our, our friends unpack the house and it was just like the highs and the lows of community all in a few hours on a Friday but here's what I have learned as I was praying about it I was putting out signs on Friday afternoon Lord you made us for this In a way that is hard for me to understand, like community is hard, but we're committed to it. And just because it's hard doesn't mean it's bad. And what I'm realizing is I walk close with others, I learn more about who you called me to be. That's saying connected to and consistent in a community is the only way to consistently grow closer Christ and if I was being completely transparent with you for a long time I thought Christian community and small groups or community groups was a great church growth strategy or a good idea but what I have learned myself as I have tried to walk close with God is it's not just a good idea it's God's only way for consistent spiritual growth that we as much as we love God we cannot get out on our own so we're going to launch with that initiative we're going to launch a couple new community groups over the course of the next couple weeks but how do we do community? Like, I don't want to do it my way. I don't really want to do it your way. I want to do it God's way. I want to know that as we follow God, we're not following him in vain. And I think this text lays out for us a very clear example of how we can serve one another well in the context of community. Paul says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul says we were affectionately desirous desirous of you. We were ready to share our life with you. We love the people who we do life with. Jesus talks all the time about we love him and we love others. The truth is like our community group are people that we love, that we look forward to, that we spend time with. It's an honest relationship, but our community groups aren't just Bible studies, right? Though we always gather around the Bible, we come together ready to share our life together because we want to spur one another on. And the way we do it at Eastside is is relatively simple. We say, "A disciple of Jesus," from John chapter ten, verse twenty-seven. Jesus says, "My sheep hear my voice; I know them; they follow me." So when we gather in community, if we haven't started this yet, we're always going to ask two questions of everyone that gathers: How are you hearing His voice? Are you spending time with God in His Word? And when you say that, like, we really want to hear, like, no, you spent time with God. I, we don't show up in community groups and say, hey, how are you hearing the shepherd's voice? And you say, well, I was reading the story of Noah the other day, and then I was driving home, and it started to rain, and I got a little scared. No, no, no. Like, we read the Bible so that it might change us. I was reading the story of Noah the other day, and I realized that my selfishness and my pride can push God all the way out of my life. But if I'm humble enough to hear what he says... Like, then he can change the world through me. Like, those are the kind of conversations we get to have in community group, and we get to process it with one another. And we get to help each other go deeper. We get to spur one another on. How are you hearing his voice, and how are you following him? What are you going to do with what God has says? How is the scripture going to make a difference in your life today, and who are you going to share it with? because we are created to live in community where we don't just we gather around the bible but we don't just gather for bible studies we share not only the gospel but our own selves also because we love the people we do life with verse 9 says for you remember brothers our labor and toil we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of god we don't approach we don't approach community thinking about what we can get out of it, but what we can give. Paul shows up in Thessalonica. He says, we worked our tails off, making tents day in and day out so that we were not a burden to you. The moment we start looking at community group through a selfish lens is the moment means we'll bail the moment our community group doesn't feel like it's serving us. We show up because we're committed to it and we watch God work through it. First 10 says, you are witnesses. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. We let our community group see how clearly we are walking, we let our community group see clearly our walk with God, the areas that we're growing and we're celebrating and the moments that we struggle and sin and we confess our sins to one another in order that we might be healed. And I mean that, like when I say we confess our sins in the context of community, Paul says, you saw how holy and righteous, and that's the goal, right? Right? But like when I read this scripture, I'm not always holy and righteous. In fact, a few, a few weeks or months ago at this point, my wife Carissa brought a, a heart-level sin to me, a, a sin that she felt like was being demonstrated in my life, and I was completely caught off guard. And you're not my community group, so I'll spare you the details of it. But I was like, I don't know. Like I don't know if I see that sin, to be fully honest, but I want to live a holy and righteous and godly life. So Monday night came around, and I told our community group, hey, for the purpose of confession, this is a sin, a heart-level sin, a posture that Carissa brought to me, and I don't see it. Can you help me see what you don't see. And to be fully honest, we've got room to grow. They kind of sat on their hands. I think they were a little scared to speak to the preacher's spiritual life. But I said, no guys, like I really want to know. Like I'm not just showing up to go through the motions. Like I don't want this time that I commit with you guys to be in vain. Like I want to leave this gathering looking more like Jesus than when we gathered together. And surely they kind of mumbled and said, Chris is always right, so just do what she says. But no, they pointed me back to scripture. It's not easy, but it's worth it, because we want to live a holy, godly life. And then verse 11 and 12, for you know, I love how Paul just continues, to say, like, you know, you know, you know, you know, because we demonstrated this in your midst. How like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, we instructed each one of you, and we encouraged you. So you got this instruction, hey, here's where you're falling short, here's how you can keep In better step with the Spirit. But at the same time, we know it's hard. And we're here with you. We'll walk arm in arm with you, spurring you on, leading you, but encouraging you. We exhorted you. We encouraged you. And we lost our place uh, in the Bible. Encouraged you. Charged you. We insisted, as the Greek word is insisted, that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Here's the goal of gathering community groups. We want for you what God wants for you. I tell my group that all the time. I do not care. I don't want you to live your life the way I want you to live your life. But here's what I want for you. I want for you what God wants for you. The Bible says that God sent a son, Jesus, to die on a cross to call you to his own kingdom and glory. That you can do life with Jesus in the kingdom of God starting today. And that he would share his glory with us, which is really just a fancy godly way of saying the weight of his presence. That we can do life with God and for God, with his presence and in his power. That's what we want for you. How do we accomplish it? Well, Paul says, we exhort, we encourage, and we charge. Now, here's the thing. Like, there's a part of me. There's a a prideful side of me in all of my life that says, I need no instruction. I am smart enough. I will figure this out for myself. And I want to show you from a silly, superficial level, and then a spiritual level, how I have found out that is not true. As much as I hate to admit it, I need instruction. A few years ago, as you know, because I don't have very many illustrations, I started trying to get in shape, and I started working out. My wife told me I was getting skinny, and I said, I'll prove you wrong. And so, like, I got the old weights out from high school, and I started working out, and I was making very, very little progress. Like, two years of hard work. I feel like it was kind of in vain, kind of spinning the wheels. A few months ago, we got a new friend. Um, I would love to say, is this really great guy, but it was a girl named Sarah, and she said, she says, Adam, I know a little bit about, because I'm a PhD in this, like, how to get strong, and I said, oh, really? I think I got it under control, and I just kept doing what I always do, and I was seeing no progress, and one day, I was like, I'm tired of being skinny. Sarah, how do I get strong? And she said, well, what are you eating? And I told her, like, she's like, well, you're eating like a high school girl, so you got to eat more. Okay, I can do that, and she said, well, how much are you lifting? I said, well, I'm, I'm really embarrassed. Uh, I have five-pound plates, and she said, well, you got to eat more and lift heavier, and I was like, all right, I'm humble enough to say I'm not making progress. I'll listen to her ex- uh, ex- her exhort me, encourage me, instruct me, and I started doing it, and like, I hate to admit it. She was right. started seeing results, and um, and I'm grateful for it, and I say that because it's kind of silly, and we can all kind of one way or another, uh, know what that experience is like. But the truth is, if it's true in those superficial things, it's even more true spiritually. Because I think my blind spots, like at heart level, where sin starts, is bigger. And my shortcomings, like my, my pride that says, hey, I can do this by myself, the Lord has shown me, Adam, like, you, you cannot. And I'm going to guess, if I struggle like that, a few of you might also. And I am eternally grateful for a few faithful friends who are following Jesus, who have said, we will follow him with you and lead you, Adam, to do the same. Paul said, or the writer of Hebrews, likely Paul says in Hebrews chapter 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Here's the goal of community. We want you, put that back up for one second. We We want for you what God wants for you. No one's twisting your arm and forcing you into a community group. But if you want this, like if you want to hold fast to Jesus, like if this is your goal, we want to provide the context and the community to make it possible. For let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faith. Why does the writer of Hebrews say that? Because we're prone to waver. And he says this and let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. All throughout scripture, you see how it it doesn't say, let's hold fast to the confession of hope. Let's dig our heels in. Let's do it on our own. Let's get a bigger Bible, a better commentary set, figure it out for ourselves. He says, let us hold fast. Let us not waver in our conviction and our commitment to Jesus. So how do we do that? Let us consider how to stir up And the Greek word for stir up is the Greek word for spur a horse. And I have never been spurred, but I've spurred a horse or two. And the horses don't love it because it's uncomfortable. It's sharp and it hurts, but it's what gets them moving. Let us stir up. Let us spur one another on towards love and good works. At the same time, let us not neglect to meet together when it gets difficult, as is the habit of some, but let us encourage. And that's spur up and encourage is the tension we wrestle with in community. If we only spur people up, people are going to be afraid to see us coming. But if we only encourage them, they'll never get moving. Community group are the few people we can trust to spur us on towards love and good works, but to encourage us and walk with us as we, as we move towards a common goal and a shared conviction. Man, this is hard, and it's uncomfortable, and people who love us might tell us what we don't want to hear, and Satan is going to leverage the selfish, sinful parts of our heart and our mind to make us think that we don't need him. And I would be willing to wager that as even as I present to you the word of God, some of you are thinking, I think I can do this on my own. Adam might need it, the people around me might need it, but I think I can do it on my own. I'm going to tell you, based on God's word, that's a lie from the, from the pit of hell. In fact, community uh, is the only way to walk close with God. Hear what Paul said, or the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to followers of Jesus. He says, hey, take care that there's not any part of you that is going to lead you away that's going to go unsurrendered to lead you away, to fall away from the living God. And then he goes on, he says, but exhort one another again community is the answer to walk with our convictions but exhort one another every day again community groups not a one-time-a-week thing it's not just show up on Sunday be there on Monday it is every day our community groups have group chats where we talk constantly about the things that God is doing where we're celebrating God working in our life where we're seeing Satan tempt us back and forth every day as long as it is called today then none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I've circled that in my Bible, the deceitfulness of sin. Here's the thing. Very few people fall away overnight. No one usually just shows up on Sunday and walks off a cliff on Monday. People fall away uh, when they're being deceived by sin. And it is a slow, painful destructive process, but I've been around ministry long enough to realize that it, it kind of demonstrates that it's the same way every time people who love the Lord and are serving in leadership capacities are advancing the gospel. Satan somehow gets a foothold in their mind. Maybe there's a sin issue or a temptation that they start to take root, and what do they do? Almost without exclusion, they start to pull back from the exhortation and encouragement of the few faithful friends who love them enough to say, hey, you're doing really well here. And we will be the first ones to show up and celebrate with you. But there's an area over here that it's not surrendered to God. And we don't, we're not mad at you, but we're sad for you. I want the encouragement and exhortation to help you see what you don't see, because we want for you what God wants for you. The question I put before us today as we sit under the authority of his word is, do we have the humility to hear that? People will always say, like, as they watch people leave, and we've been around at church long enough that we've watched people that used to stand up here and used to sit with you, they've left. And we see that their life isn't getting better when they left the church, right? And they probably didn't land at another church because the reason they left is they didn't want the exhortation or encouragement of someone who loved them enough and loved the Lord enough to spur them on. And people will ask me all the time, Adam, are you mad at fill in the blank? I said, I am not mad, but I am unbearably sad because I've seen where this leads. And somehow, Satan has convinced them that life on their own, that they can live life on their own. They, no one ever leaves. No one yet has left east side saying, I'm done with God. They leave saying, I can do this without a church. And it never gets better. I've tried to help people land in other churches, because here's the thing, we cannot follow Jesus alone. Sin and selfishness is a sickness from the enemy that will destroy our life if we let it continue to fester. And we want to be a church that leads people to experience immeasurably more because God has graciously allowed us to experience more of Him. That comes when we exchange the common for the holy. What is common in our culture is to think we can do life alone. Where it leads is no mystery. We have 2,000 years of church history to see how significant the impact of a church is. I want to share one passage with you from James chapter 4. James chapter 4, the James brother of Jesus says to the church and by extension to us in verse 5, he says, "Um, do do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us? What James is saying is God has placed his spirit in those people who have put their faith in Jesus. And where God puts his spirit, he yearns jealously. He does not let his people go easily. He wants to walk closely with you. And then he says this, but he gives more grace, because we all know that we need God's grace to continue with him. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, those who say, I can do this on my own, I don't need the help of God or anyone else, I'll figure out how to live this life by myself, but he gives grace to the humble. I've watched people leave community, I've watched people leave the church, and, and I one of my prayers for them is, God, oppose their proud hearts, because we want to see them gracious to receive, humble to receive your grace. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee for you. Maybe, maybe you've never surrendered to uh, do life with community. You don't think it's possible for the Holy Spirit to set you free from the attacks of the enemy. But James says, if you submit yourself to God, if you'll do it God's way, if you will resist the devil by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will flee from you. Because Jesus would say that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom." Well, that sounds terrible. And then he finishes with this. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Here's the thing I know, that God will lift you higher than you can ever lift yourself. But very rarely, if ever, will God do it, allow you to do it by yourself. We're making our way through this letter to the church in Thessalonica, and we're asking every week, how do we live a life that honors God? I put it before you, I don't think we can live a life with any kind of consistency that honors God by ourselves. We live a life, surrender to Jesus, in the context of, for, of community, and I can tell you firsthand, you'll be amazed at how the Holy Spirit shows up and does exactly what he promises. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is this week and every week to gather together as your people in your presence to sit under the authority of your word. Lord, there is a part of this, even as I preach it, that makes me uncomfortable. But I am eternally thankful that I get to follow Jesus every week with my favorite people, that I have a few faithful friends who are following alongside me, that are courageous enough, who love me enough to point out the areas that I'm doing well and they celebrate with me. And at the same time those areas that i'm struggling because father more than anything else i want to lead a life that honors you and i pray that is true not just of me but of our church that everyone who calls Eastside home would be wholly unsatisfied with leading leading an ordinary common life because you have immeasurably more in store for us and you make it know known to us through our friends through those few people who are willing to follow jesus alongside of us Father, I pray that over the course of the next several weeks, as we uh, rebuild and relaunch community groups, that everyone who calls Eastside home would raise their hand and say, hey, I want to get in on that. That I want to gather around a few people who will gather together with me around God's word, will share their life with me so that my life might look more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.